Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back into the Lions 24-7 podcast. I am Tyler Donahue. In just a moment, you'll hear from my colleagues, Mark Brennan and Daniel Gallen, all three of us. We're over at Holuba Hall, Penn State's indoor practice facility. Yesterday night on a Monday, following Penn State's 10th practice of preseason camp, we had a chance to hear from James Franklin, assistant coaches J1 Sider, Terry Smith, and several different players, including running back Katron Allen, offensive tackle Caden Wallace, wide receiver Harrison Wallace, linebacker Kobe King. A bunch of coverage at lines247.com for Monday night. We did not see practice on Monday. We saw a bunch of practice. In fact, we saw all of practice on Saturday. Um, on the outdoor facility, on the outdoor fields at Penn State for a while, and then the rain came, uh, and then the, and then rain really came, and we ultimately got driven in, inside with some lightning around 9 p.m. But for those of you who are out there among the fans, uh, really exciting uh, to, to get the chance to see this team in some action in a way that we haven't in past August, and to help break that down and, and to really empty the notebook a bit as we are now 10 practices in. It's August 15th. We're halfway through the month. It is mid-camp time, and that's the, the feel of the discussion today with Daniel Gallen and Mark Brennan. Fellas, good to have you back on board. Uh, it feels like camp just opened. That was 13 days ago, um, and all of a sudden the opener is 18 days away. West Virginia is here. So, Mark, Daniel, the clock's ticking, uh, whether we realize it or not. And I know we're all kind of buried in our own work trying to cover this team leading up to, to kickoff, but – I'm reminded every year August flies by because of the fashion that we have, we approach it with. Yeah. It, uh, you know, it, it seems like yesterday that camp was starting and remember what we said back then that the intensity that we saw on day one, even though they weren't in pads and every chance we've had the opportunity to see them, they've, they've, they've kind of carried on that intensity. Tyler, the, the, the other thing I'd like to throw in there is that uh, I had a chance to stop by the happy Valley United autograph session and get some photos and video uh, before the open practice on Saturday. And it's always very cool when people on the site come up and say hello, you know, and I just, you know, I always appreciate that. And then we're at, when we we're at the, the, uh, the, the, the scrimmage or the, the open practice and people had a chance to say hello. So I always appreciate that. And sometimes people think they're taking up our time and if we're working, we'll let you know, but it is always nice for people to come up and say, Hey, you know, nice to kind of see you in person. I didn't realize how ugly you are. Uh, but you know, that, that sort of thing, but it is cool to see people. And, you know, we really do. We never take our community for granted and it's always nice to say hello. 
Yeah, we had a few listeners of this podcast pop over, say hello, say they enjoyed listening to it. We really appreciate it. It was nice to meet some of you as well. Uh, Daniel, unfortunately, wasn't there with us. He had a previous engagement that was locked in for a while. This was set up just days in advance, really. So um, not able to, to mix that around. But Daniel, uh, obviously, you were with us on fr- on Thursday night at, at, at post-practice, on Monday night post-practice. So we're going to lean on you for a lot of insight. But we want to begin this episode with the fact that Penn State's in that top 10, as we thought they might be for the AP Top 25 poll, officially dropping around noon on Monday. Number seven is where you'll find the Nittany Lions. They are behind a couple Big Ten teams, which is not a shocker. Michigan is number two, trailing uh, only the Georgia Bulldogs. Georgia has 60 votes for number one uh, after back-to-back national titles. Michigan has two votes for number one. And then Ohio State at number three with one singular vote for that top spot. Alabama follows at four, LSU at five, USC at six, Penn State at seven. And if you want to look toward 2024 a bit, fellas, Five of the top 10 teams here will be in the Big Ten next year because you've got number six, USC, number 10, Washington, entering the fold. Daniel, where do we start with this list and what do we think about the Nittany Lions placement? Yeah, it, it wasn't really a surprise to see where Penn State came in. Um, you know, They finished last year at number seven in both the AP and the USA Today coaches polls. They open this year at number seven in both the AP and USA Today coaches polls. I think that that's kind of indicative of how Penn State finished last year, what they're bringing back, what some of the question marks are, and also what some of the the other teams around them, the expectations are for them. Um, So, you know, I wasn't really, I thought Penn State, there's the outside chance that they could, you know, be in that five, six range. I think that, you know, the range on all the ballots was between five and 12. Um, You know, I think that having this team outside the top 10, yeah, that's a little bit of a harder sell for me. But, you know, I do think that having them at number seven with what we know about them, what we expect about them, what their ceiling is, um, and also factoring in what's ahead, including having number two and number three um, on the schedule. I I think that this slots in um, pretty nicely. There is uh, one other opponent uh, on their schedule who was ranked. uh, Iowa was in there at number 25. Um, so if all things go as we expect them to do, accept them to expect them to go that, uh, whiteout game on September 23rd, uh, at Beaver stadium, uh, should be between two undefeated ranked teams, which, you know, there's a little bit of juice there for prime time. Yeah. Iowa at 25, as you mentioned, Wisconsin are also out of the big 10 West at number 19. They are not on Penn state schedule. And then another future uh, conference opponent down the line, Oregon at number 15, uh, again, the conference is going to blow up in a big way next year with this Pac-12 schools coming in. And they're the, they're the really good Pac-12 schools as well. Uh, I, I Man, I just went through this list to double-check myself. And, Mark, James Franklin's in year 10 with Penn State. Uh, it's felt like a roller coaster ride at times in recent years for different reasons. But this marks eight consecutive seasons in which Penn State, at some point, whether it's the start of the year, the finish of the year, or some point in between, ends up with a top 10 AP ranking. Eight consecutive years now. They're 0-0 right now, so there's not much you can say they've done to earn it, but it says a lot about where the expectations are in place for Penn State. You go back to last year, Daniel referenced it. They finished seventh last year. They were not ranked in August 2022. Yeah, but it was the other way around a couple of years before that, wasn't <laughs> exactly. it? Where, where, yes, where it was. they were. Listen, I think the, 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 the important thing is, you know, history tells us, and I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but if you're in that top seven, uh, you know, it, that's typically where the national champion comes from. So as much as these polls really don't mean anything, 
uh, I, I think b- because you could be in the top seven and, and, and tumble out or you could be not in the pole and, and, and climb up. I think what it tells you is that generally speaking, these voters kind of get it right. They kind of know who the best of the best are and to be in that company. And the other thing I would say, and, and I know some people don't want to hear this, but you talk about that level of consistency even though during the seasons there's been some ups and downs, you also have to remember where this program was when James Franklin took over. I mean, it, there were people who were saying this program was going to be, you know, dead for a decade, and that didn't turn out to be the case. Now, some things changed with the sanctions and whatnot, but I think to establish that level of consistency has been important. But, you know, what's the big but? Now you're at the point where, okay, you're in the top seven preseason. You finished last season top seven. It's time to beat one of those other two teams in the Big Ten and make that step up. I mean, that's what I think everybody's expecting in Camp Penn State do it. I think they have the talent to do it. Let's see if they have the mindset to do it when the games start. Yeah, just just going back to your point about the consistency and and all that, you go back to to Penn State's placement in the AP polls and where they were able to get to uh, predating James Franklin. You look at a span that that goes uh, 2008 through 2013. Uh, they they were able to get into the top ten just twice during that span. Two thousand, I'm sorry, 2008 they got number three was the high point. 2009 they got to number five. They did not enter the top ten again until seven years later in 2016 when Penn State went on its surprise Big Ten title run. And when you look at where Penn State has started in these AP polls uh, in the past eight years or so, uh, top ten starts in 2017 they were number six. 2018 they were number ten. 2020 they were number seven before starting 0 and 5 and now of course this year at number seven and when you look at years they have finished in the top 10 overall uh not as many you look at 2019 they finished ninth last year finishing seventh overall and then 17 and 16 finishing eighth and seventh respectively uh so we'll see how it matches up when we look at this thing come that first or second week in january and it's all sorted out where penn state stands there but obviously it's good striking position to start the season says a lot about how you're viewed externally and we know how this team feels about itself internally in fact we're starting to learn more about that fellas as we have more conversations get more eyeballs on practices and we're now to the point now, 10 practices in, where the depth chart's starting to come together. We'll have our mid-camp depth chart up at Lions 24-7 this week. Uh, but, but Mark, coming off the field Saturday, um, the energy was very apparent. I mean, let's just say the competition, James Franklin talks about it so much. They're walking that walk right now. And, 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 and what we have seen, that's from the start of practice when they're out there stretching and you can pick up some different vibes. We're usually not on the field for that portion of it. I could, you could feel that energy. You could sense that. Part of it was the fans being out there. Part of it was the rain coming down in bunches, but I think that the players and the staff were bringing plenty of that organically. And then we finished with the drill that we usually don't get to see, some one-on-one action where James Franklin's calling out a defender and an offensive player. The offensive player gets the ball. The defensive player gets a bit of a start, and they meet in the middle, and you see what happens. And guys were just the right level of crap talking to me. They didn't cross the line too much, but it was right there where you want it to be. And uh, we'll get into some of the details on it. We already did with a 3,000-word notebook on Saturday night coming off the field. But, Mark, I, I think this team's in a really good spot, uh, just camaraderie standpoint. And, and uh, I've co- you know, seven of these teams I've covered now, seven different installments of the Nittany Lions, this is the biggest sense of preseason compo- like confidence. And we love each other that I've picked up since 2017 when they were coming off of a Big Ten title run. Yeah, listen, as you said, we could get in. They call it the Lion's Den. Am I getting that right? I was calling it the wrong thing, but um, the, the drill to end practice. 
and we can get into the details later of, of, of some of the cool things that we saw. But what was the other thing that you saw besides just one-on-one -on -one competition? You saw the trash talking in, in a fun way. You saw the, the, the elevated level of competition between guys and how seriously they were taking it all. I mean, it was like fun to watch. And I thought it was pretty cool. They had a juggle practice around. And I'm not sure if they were going to end practice on that note regardless. I, I think they probably were. Uh, but at that point, they had moved it inside and there weren't nearly as many fans. And I think anybody who left, whether you were the fans or the media, you missed a really cool part of the practice. But I think that Lions Den drill speaks to a lot of what you were saying. Unfortunately, that was not during a period where we could uh, videotape or take photos uh, but the, the sense of energy and to, to be able to have the fans that close. I mean, it was literally, what, you know, 10 feet in front of where the fans were. And at one point, at in that drill, typically the players surround the entire drill. And at one point, Franklin went off and said, you know, everybody back off, make sure – he didn't say make sure the fans have a view, but it's like everybody get behind here. you got to get – Chuck Losey was out there, the strength coach, moving everybody back – so everybody could see what it was about. And I think there was a method to that madness. I think they wanted to let people know, hey, this is the intensity with which we're playing. But the trash talking was absolutely hilarious. And again, we'll get into to different reps and stuff, but Keandre Lambert-Smith lost a rep, and they were the defense was all over him. And he's like one of the most notorious trash talkers on the team. And they let him have it in his face. And then... Let's just say that the tables turned and then Keandre Lambert Smith was squawking a little bit. And I just thought all of that was really fun to see. And it speaks to it, it's kind of the exemplifies what you were talking about. Yeah, the tables turned. Uh, KJ Winston missed him a couple of times. And all of a sudden, uh, Keandre Lambert Smith was the one hooting and hollering as this thing came to a close. <laughs> Although it was the offensive side of the football who had to do push ups after that drill. Overall, the defense got the upper hand. And, and that was the case. That was the case all day Saturday. As we watched practice, there was an open scrimmage uh, for portion of, of that as well. Uh, not everybody was participating. We'll talk about uh, uh, why Olu Fashionu wasn't out there and, and what they're doing with him this preseason camp in just a bit. But plenty, plenty of upcoming starters, contributors, new faces out there. And, and, as, and as much physicality as we'll get a chance to see in August watching Penn State football, which we really appreciated. It sounds like this thing is something they're going to – shoot for having again next August, which we certainly will be looking forward to covering again. But Mark, the defense, I mean, I, I, this has been what we've heard all camp. This is what we heard all spring. This is what we saw in the blue-white game, which if everyone remembers, one of the teams didn't score a point in the blue-white game. We saw one touchdown from an offensive player over the course of what I think was about an hour and 15 minutes of work. We're not talking about just regular scrimmage. Here's four downs. Go figure it out. We're talking about situational work, a bunch of third down stuff fourth and goal, starting from inside your own five, red zone work. But there's a lot of chances for an offensive player to get free in that span. One player reached the end zone on offense for Penn State. It was Joey Schlafer on what I think was about a five-yard reception from Jackson Smolik. So I'll just put that there on the table and give it back to you, Mark. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I would say is that I think we all know how paranoid Mike Yursich is. And I'm guessing that – I think Manny Diaz is a little bit more at ease in those situations, and I think he wasn't afraid to to show to show some things. I think Yurcich was 
you know, it was kind of, it wasn't kind of, it was extremely, extremely, extremely vanilla. So I don't take that as much as a knock on the offense. I think the offense is going to be okay. But I will say this. I think that defense has a chance to be really special because, you know, we're looking at it and we started to put together our depth chart. And, you know, all of a sudden you are looking at threes and fours on a defense. I mean, you're, you're looking at twos that would be starters almost anywhere else. And you're looking yep. at threes and fours that could really be playing in a lot of different places. I mean, up on that defensive line, you know, what, what have we heard uh, all camp is, you know, Zariah Fisher and Amin Vanover, you know? And, and those are two guys who are basically, I mean, they're second team players, but you, you have the big three who are going to rotate, I think, the majority of those snaps. And so, so, they were they were basically out there with the second team, but as you put together a depth chart, you know they kind of fall in that number three area. And if you're looking at those guys as threes, or Jordan Vandenberg as a three, or Caleb Bartes as a three, I mean th- that's like uh, you know I, I don't know I, I don't I don't remember the team being this deep since maybe the mid those powerhouse teams of the mid nineties. <clears throat> Excuse me over on, over on the offensive side they were just super deep. But, yeah, I mean, I think it just speaks to the depth and what they're going to be able to do. And, you know, the one thing that we keep hearing about is how they're two-spotting. Is that what James Franklin is calling it, where they can go right. with two different units at once? And they've been able to do that with the threes and fours to this point of camp because, knock on wood, most of the players have stayed healthy. So I just think that may not seem like a big deal now, but when you get into the fourth quarter of a game – that's gigantic. Or when you get into November and you have that, you know, some tough teams on the schedule, that's very tough. So, yeah, I think that's – when I look at that defense, we could talk about the offense being very vanilla, but I think that defense is going to do that to a lot of different teams. And, and I think yeah. the depth is really like, wow. Let's throw a couple other caveats in there. Maybe some people will call them excuses, but it's really reality with what the offense and, and was dealing with in that situation. 95% of – camps across college football right now you're going to find the defense has the upper hand over the offense that's the way it works right now in in pre-game and preseason camp but it was that was pouring I mean it was pouring rain the entire time I found a nice little overhang where I could actually write with a pen and paper where my my ink wasn't just smearing all over the paper and and totally illegible but I mean that's a tough thing to deal with and and so especially airing it out I think we saw four offensive possessions in the scrimmage setup before we saw a pass attempt beyond 15, 20 yards. Uh, and, and we'll get to, to who was throwing those passes. We'll talk about quarterbacks in a second. But Daniel Olufashinu was a participant in drill work on at, at practice. He was in his uniform on Saturday. We've seen him in every practice period. Many believe he's going to be the top offensive lineman off the board in the 2024 NFL draft when it's all said and done. But I know some fans showed up thinking they'd see number 74 at left tackle. They did not in, in that scrimmage setup. And we got some a little bit more feedback on from James Franklin about exactly what Penn State is prioritizing with Fashionu leading up to the kickoff September 2nd. Yeah, the just going back to uh, the, the two-spotting thing really quick. I, I thought that James Franklin had an interesting note last night, Monday night, when we spoke to him that the threes and fours had doubled the amount of reps this far uh, in camp than they'd gotten all of last year in camp. So, you know, in terms of of building that depth, uh, I think that that's a really, really interesting thing to watch, Um, you know, as we get further into the season and you see different guys move up the depth chart, different guys get 
uh, chances because of injuries. But yeah, with with Olu, uh, it sounds like Penn State is you know really focusing on having him ready for the season. You know, getting him there and then kind of I guess turning him loose. Uh, James Franklin, uh, you know, really said that these are you know particularly extenuating circumstances for these quote modifications. Um, you know, he said that you only do this if you have a really, really proven commodity, um, which I think that we can all agree that Fashionu is, even if he has only nine starts, you know, given what, with what he has done, um, you know, in his short time. And also part of it is is with the player where uh, Olu understands this. And, you know, James Franklin said that he's still fighting for reps. He still wants to be out there. He still wants to get all of the chances, you know, in the scrimmage work that he can get. Um, but also with the way that he's wired, you know, he knows why they're doing this. You know, he's not taking any of it personally um, and, and all of that stuff. But, you know, Franklin still said that, you know, he's still getting a lot of reps in these one-on-one situations uh, that are a little bit more of a controlled environment, um, you know, where you're going, you know, one-on-one. So there's less of a chance of, you know, getting rolled up on, stepping on someone's foot, um, you know, getting caught up in traffic and, you know, he's still going up against uh, Adisa Isaac, Chop Robinson, Deny Dennis Sutton uh, on a regular basis uh, in, in these types of situations. So, um, you know, we've heard iron sharpens iron, I think, more uh, in the past two weeks than I think I've heard in my first two years on the beat. Um, and that I think this is something where where that comes through that, you know, with the talent, with the depth, with the setup, is that even if Olu Fashion isn't in these 11 on 11 live situations, he's still getting all of this work in and he's going to be ready to go uh, come week one. I'm glad you brought up the, the third and fourth stringers from, from Olu Fashion, who might be the number one guy on this roster, to some of the, 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 the guys who are down on the depth chart, getting all that work. We're not just, just talking about walk-ons and a bunch of veterans who just aren't going to come through. We're talking about first and second year blue chip talent that's loading up on, on Power 5 practice reps over the course of August. Injuries will happen in September. Injuries will happen in October and November. And you don't know if you might need another Drew Shelton to pluck up from, from the practice field, the guy who was on track for a redshirt situation. All of a sudden, he needs to be a starter or a contributor on a regular basis come midseason. Those reps in August, and we heard a lot about how Drew Shelton was able to attack them last summer and early in the season. They pay off late, and it's very important. So we'll keep tabs on that. Um, I, I do want to get to what else we saw on the offensive line because there's some moving pieces there. Without Olu out there, it was Drew Shelton back to the left side. Of course, that's where we saw him start the final five games of last year. He's been part of that right tackle conversation with Caden Wallace uh, dating back to, to January, really, since we, we started to get our heads around what this offensive line would look like. But Caden Wallace seems to be getting some separation there. I mean, James Franklin had a lot of strong statements on him last Thursday, has said that he has shown flashes to be an elite level offensive line prospect. On the practice field, they've seen it in some game action as well. But he keeps saying the consistency needs to be there. It's got to be consistent. It can't be flashes. And Caden Wallace, based on his personal report he gave us on Monday, it has been there. He says he has surrendered zero sacks and he has been tagged with zero missed assignments during live drills. I'm sorry, during live action work uh, during Penn State's 10 practices thus far. And when we're talking about the defensive ends that we know he's working up against, uh, look, he's got the one-on-one drill work. I'm, I know he's not winning every single one of those matchups with Deny Dennis Sutton and Adiza Isaac and Chop Robinson, but when it comes to 11-on-11 man football, 
the reports we're getting from from inside that facility and what Caden is telling us himself are positive to this point. And I think we all were wondering where they would be two weeks into camp. Caden Wallace coming into this fifth year, people feel like they've got him figured out, kind of forget he had that top 100 prospect pedigree coming to campus. And we've heard all the right things from Caden and about Caden. And we saw that match up with what Phil Troutwine was, was putting out those top performers lists back in, in winter workouts a long time ago. It's good to hear and it's good to see for Caden's sake. But to me, this is a major storyline because if they're going to get a consistent Caden Wallace and a guy who's really cashing in on all the chips he brought to campus five years ago as a prospect, Mark, that changes the discussion about the, what this offensive line can be. And we'll get to another part of this at guard in just a moment, but really interesting to see to see how it's progressing at right tackle thus far. Yeah, we mentioned it on the pod last week, right? I mean, everything that we're hearing, uh, you know, kind of keeping the ear to the ground is that Caden Wallace is a guy who athletically and size-wise is an NFL talent. And he's just not been able to put it together mentally. And I, and for, I want to be very clear, Caden Wallace is an extremely smart guy, like extremely smart, so I don't mean mentally that way. I mean, just something hasn't clicked out there for him. And if it's starting to click, he has that ability. So we've been hearing that. And then James Franklin came out, I think it was last Thursday, mm -hmm. and really definitively said the same thing, that you know this, this guy has that level of talent, that he could be one of the, the, the best in the nation. And that's saying something when you have Olu kind of on the other side. So I think it's there, but it's a matter of, you know, we've heard this for years. And I think now, okay, he's getting it done in practice. That's great. Now it's time for him to step up and get it done in games. And listen, if he does it, then I think you're in a position at tackle where you have Olu on one side and you have Caden Wallace on the other side. And then you have Drew Shelton, who represented when he came in last year and played very well, not perfectly, but as well as you could expect a true freshman to play. And now all of a sudden you have three tackles where, again, knock on wood, if somebody gets bumped up, you know, you're comfortable sliding somebody in there. You know, let's hope everybody across college football that all, everybody stays healthy. But realistically speaking, we know that's not the case. And to, that's why I think that's so important is because now, again, it goes back to what we were saying about the defense. You know, you get into the fourth quarter of a game and maybe somebody needs a little bit of a break or, or the third quarter even, and you can feel comfortable with Drew Shelton there. And I think that's why we're seeing Drew Shelton repping at both sides, right? Not mm -hmm. a knock on any of the other tackles, but these are the big three. It's almost like on defense with your ends. You have three guys that you know are the big three. And I think at defensive or offensive tackle right now, you have three guys who are the big three. So I agree with you. I mean, you came over to me during, uh, you know, as we were watching things. And I was going to strangle you because I had good video and you were talking over it. <laughs> Uh, it was, it was the, the, you know, what the funny part of it was we got very, it was very tough to get shots during the open period of the quarterbacks, quarterbacks, because they were way far away from, from us. So I'll tell people a little secret. I'm shooting, uh, Drew Aller and Bo Prabula and I get them throwing the ball once and then I get them throwing another one. And, and, and Tyler's telling me about Caden Wallace over, over them throwing. And I go back and I look, so I had to take a background audio from another clip and stick it over that clip just to, to mute you out, Tyler. But your point was extremely well taken. I didn't realize till after the fact that, you know what, this is a primary storyline, and you had every right to come over and bother me during practice because that is a primary storyline for this team if Caden Wallace is playing at that level. 
You're not the first to mute me out in, in my own household, even Mark. So I don't take offense to it. Uh, I, I let's just getting back to the importance of those tackles. You may have more than just those three. And right now it, it's looking like Drew Shelton's going to be that swing guy. Caden Wallace was pretty much in awe of what Drew Shelton has done in 2023, going from the left side to the right side and the left side and the right side practice after practice. We saw it on Saturday. Very difficult thing for a lot of tackles to deal with or guards moving from one side to the next. And Caden Wallace isn't dealing with that. Achimdi Ono, by the way, a freshman who got to the campus in June, has been doing that a bit as well. So some impressive stuff there from a young player. But J.B. Nelson is proving more and more to be one of the most valuable members of this offense because of what you want from this offensive line and how he might help you get there. We saw him as the first team left guard and the second team left tackle as Saturday progressed, Olu Fashionu being out changes things. Landon Tangwall being missing in action obviously changes things. We saw Olu return. He was in uniform. He was he was observing the, the scrimmage, but he was drilling. We have not seen Landon Tangwall in our practice views since August 2nd, which was the initial practice look, practice number one. We've been back a couple times since then. We got a long look on this past Saturday, and we have not seen number 58 lined up out there. James Franklin acknowledged on Monday night that he's dealing with some bumps and bruises, and unfortunately for Lennon Tengwall, availability has been an issue since he got to uh, campus, really got an opportunity to break through in that starting lineup in, in 2022, started those first five games rotating in, uh, rotating out with Hunter Norzad and, and J.B. Nelson at one point, then injured before the Michigan matchup, misses the rest of it, and here he is kind of pegged as, as a guy who's going to step up and get that starting job back and missing from action for the time being. In his absence, though, J.B. Nelson has really impressed, and, and, and he is also a guy that they think is game-ready at the tackle spot where he played as a Juco prospect, one of the premier junior college players at Lackawanna College in the 2022 cycle, came to campus last year, would have burned redshirt if they needed him to. They did not need him to. He was at four games when it was all said and done. A couple games he played extensively, Central Michigan, Indiana. I had a piece up last week before we got to see him on Saturday, and based on all the stuff that we had collectively heard about J.B. Nelson through the first week-plus of camp, and it was all pointing toward him having that kind of performance on Saturday. He had a false start, and James Franklin made him run a lap around the field, which is something they pulled from the New England Patriots from their visit up there earlier this year. But aside from that mistake, I thought J.B. Nelson flashed a lot. Uh, he is a, a guy with cruel intentions out there. 330 pounds, but it's a reworked 330. It's a, a lot of muscle involved there. It's good mass, and he knows how to use it. I just think that the nastiness that everyone tells you about is precisely the stuff that James Franklin has been searching for and clamoring for from this offensive line for six, seven, eight years now. He's got a guy right here who can deliver it, and the longer that Landon Tengwall is kind of in this, uh, in this patch where he's trying to get into playing shape and trying to be back on the field – the more it sets up that we're going to see a lot of J.B. Nelson. We already knew we'd see a lot of J.B. Nelson in 2023. Now I'm truly starting to wonder if he's going to be a starter for this offensive line. And that's even if Landon Tengwell gets back on the field here for the second half of training camp. That's how strong the feedback has been on J.B. Nelson, who, by the way, is a redshirt junior. Uh, Mark, I know you've had a chance to see him. You've heard about him quite a bit. He's really transformed his body. Um, but with Tengwell out and then with Olu on this modification, he is really, really a, an important cog for what Phil Troutline is trying to do. Yeah, I mean, he's a utility guy, right? I mean, if you have somebody who can play offensive guard and offensive tackle, I mean, that is really, really important. And, you know, the, what have we heard, and we talked about this last week, that within the within the program, they think this is a guy with NFL potential. Yeah. And, you know, we hear words like, you know, uh, aggressive, mean, you know, all those those things about how, how he just really gets after it. But 
why does he project at the NFL level? Well, because when you're in the NFL, they only carry Daniel. You, you know this as, as well as any anybody. What is it? Eight offensive linemen typically at, at most. So what do you need? You need your starters, and then you need guys who can play multiple positions. So I think this is setting up really well for JB Nelson. Feel bad for Landon Tangwell. I mean, you you mentioned it. You know, the best ability is availability. I know that's a cliche, but hopefully he's able to get everything together but that's why we're talking about why this team can be good isn't it because if somebody gets banged up and he is then you have somebody that you can slot in there and Tyler I agree with you I I don't think it was a slam dunk that he was going to be the clear-cut starter even if he was 100% healthy and he's a friend of the podcast, and we all think extremely highly of him. We know how 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 strong and athletic he is. But you're in a you're in a this program is at a place now where even a guy who was able to come in and get some valuable reps as a as a freshman, even though he was able to redshirt, you know, everybody's fighting for snaps. Yeah, I think Olu's at a different level, obviously. You know, that's a guy who has an opportunity to be a, a top 10 pick. But, you know, Nick Singleton, I mean, th- that's a guy that everybody's raving about. But James Franklin is saying, and I, and I, and I believe Franklin in this. Like when Franklin says, uh, you know, it's still a quarterback competition, he's saying that just to keep the quarterbacks motivated. But when he's saying that, that uh, Nick Singleton and Catron Allen are, are like they're, they're two starting backs, he's, that, that's true. I mean, it's incredible to think that you have a starting running back like Kate or like Nick Singleton. And, you know, it's not even, I don't even, I wouldn't even say it's a 1A. I mean, I think it's two ones. So getting back to the O line, I think that's why it's so important because we've seen over the last couple of years, somebody in, in, in variably or inevitably is going to get banged up. Last year was, was a perfect example where multiple guys got banged up. And they were able to bring guys up. And I think it's going to be at an even different level this year. Again, knock on wood. Hope everybody stays healthy. Uh, hope Landon Tangwell you know, get, gets healthy and is able to be the best he can be. But J.B. Nelson is going to be somebody who plays on this offensive line. And I think it's going to be a lot at guard. James Franklin told us on Thursday uh, that Olu Fashionu and center Hunter Norzad are foundational guys on this offensive line. He says Salim Wormley at right guard. And right tackle Caden Wallace are trending in that direction. Um, but I want to talk about Norzad real quick because, Daniel, you had a chance to, to, to drop a bunch of notes, uh, lines 24-7, um, off of what Norzad had to tell us on Thursday. Guy that came in from the Ivy League, Cornell last year, a couple months before preseason camp, ends up in a rotational situation with Landon Tengwell at left guard, then ends up the starter by mid-October with Tengwell sidelined. And now with Juice Scruggs off to the NFL and potentially starting as a rookie for the Houston Texans, Penn State has a center uh, uh, that that we they have an answer at center, but we got to figure out just exactly what it looks like in game action with the new starting quarterback. What did you hear from Hunter Norzad about how that process is going? Yeah, Hunter Norzad is someone who uh, is pretty. You know, he he doesn't give you a lot. He's he's not really you know he doesn't. I don't think he really likes to talk about himself that much, and he's very much a, a company man. But you know, he talked a lot about how you know physically. He feels really good this year. You know, he's had the full off season in this Penn State strength program. Um, you know, he's been able to develop his body a little bit more. Um, and I think the big thing has for him has been developing that chemistry, you know, with Drew Aller. 
um, and, you know, kind of finding his own voice a little bit. You know, I think that's something that we've heard a lot about with Aller is that he really had to work on becoming louder, um, you know, to make those calls at the line, to have that authority, uh, that authoritative voice. Um, you know, G Scruggs talked about having to develop that part of his game a little bit um, when he moved into center, you know, becoming more of a leader, becoming more vocal. Um, and I think that Hunter Norzad has kind of had to make a similar transition there. Um, you know, he has to make those calls in the middle. He has to ID everything. Um, there's a lot of responsibility onto his plate. Obviously, Ivy League guy, you know, from Cornell, um, engineering degree. He's got it going on up top, basically. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's been an adjustment for him. It's been something different. But, you know, it does seem like he is taking to it, you know, pretty well. Um you know, I, it's one of those things where, you know, he does seem like an answer to the question at center, you know, getting a new starter there. But, you know, he's still a, a first time full time starter at center. I think that's a little bit more underrated than maybe having a, a first time starter at quarterback. Um, but, yeah, I think that he is coming along. And, you know, I think that the the fact that he was kind of a, almost a, a set it and forget it piece there that, you know, he's been there you know, since the spring, this is where he's been on this track the whole time. I think that Penn State has a lot of trust in him, and he's rewarded that trust so far in practice. Penn State trying to establish a guy that they can feel comfortable with as a starter, and then especially for next year as well with Nick Dawkins, the redshirt junior, has been getting a ton of work at center as well uh, behind Norzad. I wanted to go over to the trench, uh, the other side of the trenches real quick, just on a couple injury notes. We mentioned Landon Tangwall, and, and we're kind of in wait-and-see mode with his status, but we have some definitive uh, answers on, on where things stand with a couple defensive linemen. Alonzo Ford last Thursday, a confirmation that he is out for the 2023 season. He came over from Old Dominion in May two-year starter for the Monarchs, each of his first couple of college seasons under former Penn State offensive coordinator Ricky Ronnie. Uh, made the move here. We, we weren't expecting him to, to crack the starting lineup for the Nittany Lions. In fact, it was probably going to be a, a difficult push for him to really be a, a premier rotational piece at defensive tackle because of the depth we discussed. Um, unfortunately for him, it, it, it was over before it started, it feels like, for preseason camp in a lot of ways. We saw him uh, operating his way around around the, uh, the practice field on one of those motorized chairs uh, in the last couple of looks at practice. So Keep him in mind for next year. He'll be a redshirt junior. And then keep Smith Vilbert in mind for next year, it turns out. A redshirt senior this year. He's got that COVID eligibility in his back pocket. And James Franklin uh, told us on Monday night that his injury, which uh, was confirmed on, on the uh, media day back a couple Sundays ago, that dated back to the spring. So this is one that internally they've been braced for, uh, they've been prepared for, uh, and they expect to have him back next year. Smith Wilbert graduated this past weekend from Penn State. He's a redshirt senior, but as I said, with that extra eligibility, James Franklin says the plan now, get him back, have a huge 2024 season, and chase a second degree from, from Penn State. And so, look, it's, it's going to be a two-year waiting game by the time Smith Wilbert, knock on table, uh, gets a chance to, to hit the field next September. And what a story that could potentially be for a six-year college player who you know was off the grid last year for reasons that remain unknown and now is missing uh, missing action due to injury. Uh, again, wait and see on him, but don't count him out just yet. I know a lot of people have turned the page, closed the chapter, whatever you want to call it with Smith Wilbert, uh, but it looks like year six may be in the cards for him here in Happy Valley. I want to get over to another guy who flashed on Saturday over the course of that scrimmage action, and it validated a lot of what we had heard from him about him the last week and a half, two weeks of preseason camp, and that is Kobe King at middle linebacker. And I know, Mark, Saturday you and I on a couple occasions just said, wow, Kobe King's a different guy than the last time we saw this team flying around. And it's one thing to hear it. 
And we've had her, we have heard it. I had a story up on Monday uh, about Kobe King, uh, about him reading React. The game speeds at a different level. Uh, a guy who's commanding the uh, the defense uh, as as a middle linebacker, as a quarterback of your defense, uh, an extension of the coaching staff, vocal, everything that you're really looking for. And oh, by the way, in a 240 pound frame, a guy who can really get downhill after it. And that's what st- stood out to me in watching him at middle linebacker with his first team unit. Mark, no hesitation. And I know it's going up against your own offense in a controlled scrimmage environment, but Kobe King looked authoritative out there. And we saw some of Tyler Elson as well. I'd imagine he's still playing some catch-up after missing all of spring practice. He was the guy who got the 13 starts at Mike Linebacker last year. He got about 60%-ish of those snaps compared to 40% for Kobe King. You talked about it last time. Maybe that swaps this year. I, I, I'm with you. I, I think they're going to have a really hard time keeping Kobe King off this field throughout the fall. Yeah, one quick note on Smith-Vilbert. Uh, he got his degree, which is pretty cool. I mean, there were times when we were wondering if he was still going to be at Penn State. And one other point on Smith-Vilbert, I thought it was kind of funny that Franklin was asked about Landon Tangwell and said there's some bumps and bruises, but I don't talk about injuries. And then with Smith-Vilbert, he said, well, this guy's been injured you know, for six months, but nobody's asked me about him. Well, you allegedly don't talk about injuries. So how are we supposed to? But, but anyway, that was just kind of a, a, a funny part about that. You know, one thing, Tyler, that we were hearing and I think you were hearing some some of the same stuff that I was, was about how big Kobe King looked. And as it turns out, you know, he in the spring or last season, he played at close to 250. And he's actually down to 239. So he looks bigger because it's lean muscle. You know, James Franklin, one of the things he said, it was very difficult for him to lose weight because there wasn't that much fat there. And then what did Kobe King tell us that he was able to do that because he's on a fish. He eats a lot of fish and I'll let Daniel, what is it? Pescatorian. He's a pescatarian. Pescatarian. We don't hold people's religions against them. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) That's an old joke, but uh, yeah. So he he's on a, and I just thought that was kind of fascinating that, you know, here's a guy he, he, he did, he and uh, Kalen, uh, both did that in high school. When they moved to Penn State, they no longer had their mom, who's a vegetarian, cooking for them. So they started eating just what everybody else eats. And then after the Rose Bowl, he decides to go back to that kind of diet. And so that may sound kind of like a, a you know a silly part of a story, but to me, it's somebody who comes out of a season where he's splitting reps and he's thinking, how do I get that little edge? How do I get just a little bit faster? Because when you're operating at this level, and this is something Manny Diaz said when he was talking about Abdul Carter, I think, you find the advantages in the margins. I mean, everybody is so good. And to me, the fact that Kobe King thought about that, how do I get one step quicker or half a step quicker or a fraction of a second faster? Because at this level, that fraction of a second could be the difference between a national championship or a Big Ten title, or a, a win and a loss in a game. And so I just think that as much as he impresses physically, and he does, when you see him out there, for people who weren't able to get to the, to the open practice, when you see him this season, you're going to see somebody who looks like a different player, uh, a little bit faster, a little bit quicker, uh, as physical as ever. But as that Mike linebacker just seems to be knowing you know, where he's going. And I think just the fact that he – went that little step just to get a little bit better 
I think is important. And the other thing, I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that Tyler Elsden uh, was was out of spring practice with an injury. Yeah. And, you know, when you're in these sorts of battles where guys are very, very even, that's a very difficult thing. Now, again, you, you knock on wood and let's hope Tyler Elsden is able to get back and, and, and is at 100%. But I don't think you can sleep on the fact that Kobe King was out there day in and day out and through those 15 spring practices. That's very valuable stuff, especially yeah. when you're fighting for a spot. And he made the most of it. So that's pretty cool to see. James Franklin brought that up on, on Monday night. He's saying that Kobe King had a, uh, was a year behind in terms of college experience uh, with Tyler Elsden last year, and now it feels like they're on a bit more even footing because he had all those spring reps as the starting middle linebacker while Tyler Elsden's working his way back and uh, clearly didn't miss his stride, uh, did Kobe King, once they get back on the field here in August. And, and if he's going to be – at least an above-average middle linebacker for you, potentially more than that, based on what we're hearing. That kind of changes the complexion about what this linebacker room can be because we've been saying, okay, you, you, you know who's that middle linebacker, but we didn't really go any further than that. We didn't say, you know the guy at middle linebacker is going to be a problem. You know, We didn't necessarily go to that extent at middle linebacker. We said the two guys on the side of him, Abdul Carter, Curtis Jacobs, we know that they can wreak havoc. We know that they can be someone who blows up an offensive game plan over the course of a matchup because we've seen it happen over the course of their, their careers. Tyler Elsden, Kobe King, that hasn't emerged at this point, but on the practice field at this point, Kobe King starting to get more of that label. And I just want to say the depth here, we've talked about it a bunch, but seeing a couple of these guys in person, starting with Don DeLuca, who also missed all of spring ball, he was flying around out there. People really got to wrap their heads around that he's not just a nice little one-year story and now we can tuck him away on special teams for the rest of his career. He's going to be a, a presence on the defensive side of the football. I, I don't know if he's going to push for, for much more than the snaps that he saw last year. He had 200 snaps last year. Curtis Jacobs is still around, around with that Sam role. You've got some new, new pieces out there, but he looked to be a guy who was very much uh, very much comfortable out there after missing all that that. that practice in March and April and then Tony Rojas who we saw working at the will position behind Abdul Carter on Saturday that's a new wrinkle I mean we know that he's working at both Sam was kind of where we saw more of him over the course of the spring because DeLuca wasn't out there now you've got DeLuca stepping up as your backup Sam and we know he's done it in Big Ten play and I'm telling you this guy's a really good football player and then you've got all of a sudden Tony Rojas establishing himself as the next man up at will linebacker that's before we're getting to Keon, Keon Wiley, who this staff is really starting to, to feel has momentum in year two. Tamir Robinson, who has really looked the part of that blue chip prospect in year one on campus. And Kavion Keys, who brought a world of athleticism and really solid strength and size to campus. And so, again, you can name nine or ten guys, but I'm starting to get the sense now. Let's just cut it at six for now for the sake of this conversation. That too deep that I just laid out, that's a very strong too deep to roll into September with. And, and it really helps you create a little bit of a safety net for yourself because linebacker is a physical job and you take some bumps and bruises over the course of the campaign. According to uh, Terry Smith, Dom DeLuca is the takeaway king right now. Uh, that Terry Smith said that he thinks that DeLuca has around three interceptions. And, uh, you know, he made a, a joke to him that it looked like he was Jack Ham out there. Uh, with, with the way that he was playing and, and getting those interceptions. So you know, I think that DeLuca is someone where it's really easy to fly under the radar, um, especially with what's coming back and what came in uh, in terms of those freshmen. But you know, he is someone that you know, the program really, really likes. He's a special teams captain. Um, you know, he's going to have a role you know, somewhere on the team. Um, you know, I, I forget who was talking about him last week, but they said that he's the type of guy who's willing to do anything. 
you know, anything on special teams, anything on defense. Um, and when he's gotten on the, onto the field, he's made some plays. So I think that he's someone that you, you really can't count out, you know, when you're putting together a, a two deep or, or a three deep um, at this point, looking at that linebacker group. I've come to realize that Don DeLuca pretty much hates talking about himself or <laughs> pumping himself up. And, and you, you really try to, you know, you know, tell me this is Cinderella story, a walk on to, to where he's a team captain already as a redshirt sophomore. So he doesn't really go down that road too much. He's great talking about other players. But one anecdote that he shared last Thursday after practice when I had a chance to spend some time with him was his buddy sent him a picture from his hometown um, where everyone's a Penn State fan. You know, you grow up in any Lions fan there. It's that kind of community. And there was a, a number 34 jersey out there, uh, a young kid out there uh, just in his hometown. His friend snapped the photo, sent him, sent him the message, and it seemed like that really hit him in the heart, that there's a kid out there wearing his jersey in his hometown. Um, and, and that was kind of a, a moment where he peeled back that curtain a little bit. But he's a guy who, who he likes to keep it very business, at, at does Dom DeLuca, and, and he's, he's someone who's going to be around this program for a while. So get used to him. We'll be right back on the Lions 24-7 podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I do want to jump over to the defensive backfield um, and we'll talk quarterbacks, but you mentioned Terry Smith uh, and him and Anthony Poindexter obviously overseeing two very deep rooms right now. We're going to actually talk about the safety group in our mailback question a bit later. Uh, but Mark, I think one guy that maybe people are just used to him being on the program, they know he's undersized. Maybe they kind of put him to the side when we talk about all the defensive standouts. Daquan Hardy lit up that field on Saturday. I mean, he was making – he had a tremendous open field tackle of Keandre Lambert-Smith, where if Lambert-Smith gets by him, it was a third-down situational setting. I think it might have been third and seven. Uh, Keandre gets the ball, maybe three yards shy of the marker, tries to put on a move, and Daquan Hardy just dumps him right then and there. There's no there's no ground to make up, and the defense gets off, gets off the field. Those are the kind of plays he's going to have to make over and over again this season to get this defense off the field. And we've seen him make them. And there's a lot of excitement about Daquan Hardy, year three, what he can be in that slot coverage. And, and I just want to make sure we emphasize, before we get to some of the other younger, splashier names on this roster, not only does Hardy have that elite, elite speed, arguably the fastest player on this team, he's right there among them all. He brings a lot of physicality for, for being one of the smaller defensive backs in the entire roster. Yeah, and we'll talk about the older, not the older, but the veteran splashier players too, like Kalen King, who kind of showed us why he's being <laughs> looked at as, you know. He had an all-American practice on yeah, Saturday. All-American practice, yes. Yeah, but everybody knows Kalen King, and I do think Daquan Hardy kind of flies under the radar. And I think the value in, in Daquan Hardy is what you're saying. He's willing to do anything for the team. So whether that's playing that slot corner – 
whether it's coming out and running with the ones as one of the corners when one of the starters, Kalen or Johnny Dixon, needs a break, uh, whether it's being the prowler, uh, whether it's special teams returning kicks, this guy will do anything. And, you know, one of the one of the anecdotes we heard yesterday was about how fast Elliot Washington is. And yeah, just posting some ridiculous, you know, you know, number. Twenty four miles per hour he was yeah. tracked at Daniel. Was that what it was? That's what Terry Smith said. Right. And then yeah. so, so and then Terry said, but uh so I guess Daquan challenged him to an actual race. So and Daquan beat him in the race. And and it's like that's old man speed he said you you know you don't you, you when it comes it's one thing to post a, a time but it's another thing when you're out there racing somebody head to head and i boy i don't i can't believe that they they should have had video of that somewhere because that <laughs> that that is like would have been twitter gold but you know that just kind of exemplifies you know when, when he posted uh that great 40 back in the spring and i just had that up i forget what it was but it was four, four three two yeah four three two you know, he took a lot of pride in that, you know, and he posted that up there. And that's a that's a huge competition for those guys to see who can post the best 40 uh, within the program. But the fact that he's willing to do anything, and we've seen it in his stats, right? I mean, that guy has more sacks than some of the defensive ends in this program. It's <laughs> it's unbelievable. And he's small. He's really small. But I think another one of those guys, we talked about it, J.B. Nelson on the other side. You know, much different athlete, you know, a big 330-pounder. But Daquan Hardy is a guy who's willing to do whatever it takes to make the defense better. And I think the fact that the staff is getting these guys to buy into these roles tells you something. You know, in an era where Daquan Hardy probably could have entered the portal and gone and been a full-time starter at corner at, you know, 80 different schools, he decides to stay here and be an integral part of this defense, doing all sorts of different things. And I think that bodes well for him. You know, again, he's so he, he's small, and I want to look. I want to get the numbers correct here, but they have him listed at uh, yeah five nine one eighty one. So where does he go after this? You know, could he be a guy like Zach Zach McPherson? You know, who ends up sticking with the Eagles just because he's willing to do kind of anything for the Eagles, special teams, backup DB. I don't know. I just think he has that package of athleticism. The size is going to work against him at the next level. But I think being that team player, being willing to do anything, special teams, defense, uh, nickel, prowler, whatever, uh, I just think that speaks very well of him. One other thing with uh, yeah. Hardy with Hardy on the speed front and how much pride he's taken in it. You know, he he posted that board where he was at the top of, and then back in February at the Thon Explorers program, he made sure to point at the board where he was listed <laughs> yeah. uh, when he was walking around with, with the kids to, to point that out to them, to yep. show them how fast he <laughs> was. These little and, kids are like, oh, what, what does this even mean? Yeah, I don't and, even and, know. But... And how, how excited he was. So I think that he's someone, uh, I think we're going to see that speed a lot uh, at different times this year. Yeah, Daquan Hardy was a fascinating recruit, just, just remembering him at Penn Hills. About 155, 160 pounds as a high school senior. He was the PIAA Class 5A State Player of the Year. Uh, 18 interceptions, I believe it was, as an upperclassman, which is just a ridiculous number. And he went off in the state championship game, which Penn State staff was in attendance for. Uh, did it all over the field. However, he didn't get an offer for like three months after that. He was on the verge of of essentially deciding between a couple of Mac schools uh, on, on the day before signing day, 
Penn State puts that later late offer out. He jumps right at it, and all of a sudden, you know, a year later, uh, he's getting a lot of action on the football field. And now, five years later, he's entrenched as what is a three-year starter. Uh, it's been a really cool start sort of follow. He's always been a small guy, but that speed has stood out. He went four-four range at, at Penn State camp during his high school career, and really helped himself stay on the radar with that speed. Uh, Tyler, remember elsewhere. the corners yeah. in that class. Remember the corners in the class that came in. I can there. give you. I can give you the right off the top of my head. You got Keaton Ellis now at safety. You got Marquise Wilson now at Purdue. I think he landed, mm-hmm. uh, and then you've got Joey some, Porter Jr. Some now guy named Pittsburgh Joey Steelers. Porter Jr. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that that was that was quite the haul for Terry Smith. And when you look at it, uh, what they've got, what they squeezed out of that class, and I, and 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 Marquise Wilson. Let's not forget how good he was as a freshman going to the to the Cotton Bowl. But uh, you know. Before we go down that rabbit hole, let, let's let's bring it back in. And there was another cornerback I wanted to get to, and he doesn't have the size issue. Uh, and he certainly has the speed, as we just referenced. But Elliot Washington keeps popping up at the cornerback position. He's, again, not a, a freshman they'll need to lean on. I think that's kind of a consistent theme with this. If you gave this 2023 Penn State freshman class to a lot of Big Ten teams and said, here you go, do what you want with this class, there's going to be a bunch of starters out there in the conference. There's going to be a bunch of guys playing ball right from the start of September these guys are competing for third string jobs at Penn state right now, a bunch of them they're competing. And, and this is what I'm looking at with a guy like Elliot Washington. He's trying to break through at cornerback King Mack at safety, trying to break through and not be a fourth stringer when the season opens and Mark King Mack to me and Elliot Washington, they were both flashing uh, on Saturday and we had heard about them from staff. And we've heard about them uh, from, from fellow players, Elliot Washington more so because it goes all the way back to spring ball. And he's the guy who was committed to the Alabama, the crimson tide, uh, ends up flipping or ends up coming to Penn State and you get him on campus. Not only does he become one of the fastest players on your roster right away, but he becomes one of your more physically willing cornerbacks immediately as well, working through spring camp. You've got Storm Duck on campus, so the snaps are kind of being bounced around all over the place. Storm Duck leaves and Elliot Washington could be a guy you got to put Cam Miller up, above him because he's in year two and, and he's playing really good football. But to me, uh, he's in a good spot to burn redshirt, not just because of what he can do defensively, but how he can contribute on special teams. I think he's going to get a lot of run on coverage units as the season goes. You don't keep that speed on the sideline, especially when you match it with a frame like his. And then King Mac, same deal. I mean, we saw him working at kick returner. We've seen him working on coverage teams. And I don't know how it happens at safety, and we'll get to that with our mailbag. But just the way he reacts and flies to the football, I think he actually forced the fumble at one point or he, he had his hand in on it. Um, and he just really shows up. And it's not easy for a freshman to do that. He's not a guy that you just stare at when they're stretching and say, that's going to be a big time freshman player. He's a little on, he's on the small side. He's got to fill out a bit. But then the, the ball gets snapped. You see the defensive players moving. And I kept shifting my eyes to number nine, which matches up about the, the, the feedback we heard from uh, King Mac dating back to the earliest days of this camp. Yeah, well, when you look at that secondary and you see the level of talent, uh, even losing the, the guys that they lost, um, the thing that stands out to me about those two young guys is that they just look completely at home out there. Like, you, you, if you didn't know, you, you wouldn't think that they were true freshmen. And maybe that sounds like faint praise, but I think there's something to that. When you're in a veteran unit like that and you're out there looking like you, you know what the hell you're doing, you know, there's something to be said for that. And then you add in, you know, the athletic ability. And and that's what this all boils down to, right? I mean, they're recruiting elite athletes. And, you know, some of them are, uh, you know, big and athletic. And, and But if they're going to go with the smaller kid, they're going to be very make, fast. 
Carmelo yeah, Taylor. Better, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's that that's what I think is important. That's why when we say they they fit out there, when you're at these things, it's it, when you're down on the field at a college football game or practice, you have a sense for how fast things are going. Like when you watch it on TV, you have no idea. You have zero idea. When you're down there on the field and I see Keandre Lambert Smith catch a pass and I see Keaton Ellis just come running over at 90 miles an hour and wiping him out. And you're like, whoa, you know, like 20 feet in front of you. And that's where I say with, with these young guys, they are out there flying around at that level. And that's what you have to do to be successful. You can't be out there with eyes wide open during the headlights. And, and I think that's the important part of it. So you have the athleticism. You have that comfort being out there, you know, when, when everything is hitting the fan. And I think the fact that they don't have to force these guys into early action is going to be good for them long term. But I do think that, again, if there are injuries – I think these are two the kind of players that if they need to play them, they're going to be able to play them, and these guys could be effective. Not as effective as, as the guys at the top of the depth chart now, but I, I think, as, as you mentioned, there are a lot of other programs that are probably looking at this roster and seeing two guys like that, and it's like, you know, they'd be probably starting or, or, or pushing for a starting job on on, on, on a lot of different rosters. Penn State is at the point right now in program building, roster building, where these are luxury pieces. They might not be a luxury piece come mid-September, but right now the way that we're reviewing them, not guys that you need to count on, but the guys that could give you some kind of an edge over the course of 60 minutes. It may only require a few different plays here and there. Um, look, it took about an hour. We got some quarterbacks to talk about. It probably tells the story about what we saw on Saturday. It was not an offensive fireworks. We laid out some of the reasoning why. But as James Franklin said, they can't throw enough between now and the opener. Uh, they relied on the run game in that scenario with the weather. Uh, and, and as James Franklin said, you can't be one dimensional, but this isn't a, a post game, uh, you know, interview with James Franklin. It's just kind of, you know, wrapping our heads around what we saw on Saturday, which was not a lot of balls being completed downfield, um, and didn't get that kind of, uh, explosive night from the offense. And, and we weren't expecting it when we showed up, but Mark, what do you come away with? I mean, it was pretty much drew Aller in control as, as that first team quarterback. Uh, we saw Bo mix in there a little bit. Um, but but Drew was the guy. We expect him to be the guy September 2nd. He had a, a best ball of the night was probably that pass that was broken up by Kalen King. If he had completed that one, it was going to be about a 40-yard touchdown pass to Harrison Wallace in stride. Happened right in front of me. Kalen King gets a few fingertips on it, plays the ball perfectly, and then lets Harrison Wallace know all about it afterward. Drew did have some nice connections uh, along the course. I thought the best was probably one uh, down the right sideline to Malik Mega on the outside. Yeah. What did you take away from Drew Aller, who was he was being uh, hurried and, and and harassed by this defense along the way as well? Yeah, again, I, I just think it's tough with the weather and that. First of all, he didn't. We didn't see that many deep passes, did we? Mm -hmm. I mean, no. Was there more than like three or four, if that? There was a couple, unfortunately, where you can kind of say, well, the, the passing game needs their reps is we saw some miscommunications where I can't really right. lay that on on the on vanilla offense. I can't really lay that 
on the defense being yeah, outstanding. I can't, Theo, really, I can't right. really lay that on the rain. Yeah, one toward the direction of Theo Johnson where he was not looking for the football and it landed in the end zone. Really, no one was there. And then another where Drew was looking for Liam Clifford down the seam. I believe it was Drew. It may have been Bo. Uh, and Liam Clifford wasn't looking for the football. I think it almost hit him in the helmet. So a couple examples there on, on, on passes downfield where you say, all right, well, hey, you've got about three weeks until you're doing this against the West Virginia Mountaineers uh, and, and you can get there. Right, but I, I think the other thing I would say is there's a lot of things that we've seen when we've been at practice that we didn't see there. And we have yes. to be careful with what we talk about in some of the formations and stuff that they do because we agree not to give away formations or not to give away certain plays that they work on uh, as part of the ability to, to, to be there. But I, w- I will say I don't think we saw overall the use of the tight end that we're going to see. Oh, yeah. I don't think we saw overall the use of the running backs in the passing game that we're going to see. Although there was one pass to Trey Potts where Kalen King came up and stopped them in his tracks. And that was another like, whoa, because this was a one, you know, Trey or Potts had had the ball. And this was a one on one situation. And he's powerful. And, Potts is a powerfully built running back. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm, I would guess that eight times out of ten, the, the running back's going to win that because it's a difficult situation for the defensive back because it's in the open field. It was like a swing pass. I don't think I'm giving away too much there. Well, I mean, it was an open practice, so other people <laughs> but, uh But, yeah, the way that King came up. But my point being, I think there are things that we're going to see that we didn't necessarily see. So I don't think it's time to panic about the offense. Uh, I do wish that the weather was nicer. Yeah. You know, I do wish that the weather was nicer because that inherently, I think, gives the defense an edge in terms of getting to the quarterback. And the quarterbacks did not have much time. I mean, those those guys are really good. And you didn't have Olu. And I just think all those things kind of conspired. And, and, and Yurcich is paranoid. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way. He's coach paranoid in a good way. He, he doesn't want to give stuff away. And I'm sure when they were deciding whether or not to open this, they were probably getting more pushback from Mike than they were from Manny, right? Would you guess that? I mean, that- Fr- Franklin, Franklin has said that, that the big the reason why they haven't done this in this past is because coordinators haven't really been on board. And, and yeah, I'm certainly I, leaning in that direction with you about which coordinator would be kind of banging the table and saying, we're not going to go put it all out in front of fans and media for a two-hour period. So uh, there are there question marks about the offense after that? Yeah, there definitely are. I mean, I'm anxious to see it in the opener or if we get other looks at scrimmage action, which I don't know that we will at this point, uh, or what we can hear coming out of out of, out of of practice from our, our sources and keeping the ear to the ground. But I think, generally speaking, the offense has been better this preseason than we saw in, in, in that instance. So I don't know that it's, it, it's reason to panic just yet. I think there are so many weapons over there that they are going to be uh, just fine. That's, that, that's my take on it. We'll see come West Virginia. And, and Drew Aller, um, the arm talent clearly in its own tier among this quarterback group. And, and what I will say is going back to even the pre-practice throws or the pre-scrimmage throws that we saw out there in the rain, uh, he was overshooting some guys with tendency. We did not see him put the ball in harm's way, though. We didn't see that really during spring ball. You didn't see it during game action last year. Zero interceptions uh, and pretty solid action over the course of the season. And again, on Saturday, not even any close 
two interception moments for, for Drew Aller. His misses were uh, trending toward the sideline or, or going to the corner of the end zone. They were, they were quote unquote good misses in terms of not trying to turn the ball over. And, and that kind of extended for all the quarterbacks. So I'll, I'll, I'll give them credit on a rainy day. There were some, there were some quarterback running back exchange issues. There were some, some fumble issues that we saw in the return game and among the running backs, but the quarterbacks weren't putting the, putting passes in, in really a dangerous situations. And I thought that really showed up for Jackson Smolik kind of looked exactly how he's been described to us as this true freshman number three quarterback who looks quite comfortable considering the crowd was there, the defense he was dealing with, and, and oftentimes going to, up against the third team defense there. But Smolik, I thought, had, had an overall look, look, looked like he belonged in a power five setting like this. And that's all you really want to get out of the situation right now with the first year third string quarterback. And, you know, it's interesting with Bo Perbula, just like we said during their prospect careers, we always said if you watch these guys in an Elite 11 uh, situation, but I mean, Bo has no chance because Drew's got the arm and so much of what Bo does that makes him special happens outside the pocket or happens downfield. And that was kind of what we saw in this scrimmage scenario. I thought the best of what Bo was over the course of Saturday was when he was rolling out and extending some plays. We saw him connect with some uh, some receivers downfield on the run. And then we saw a couple of really nice passes where he showed some bursts, got that speed upfield, turned it up a little bit. And obviously a quarterback scampering around in a practice situation you're kind of protected. No one's going to lay you out, but I thought the athleticism really showed up uh, in that regard at quarterback, but I'm with you, Mark. I don't want to tell anyone that we're going too, too far down the road and, and taking a lot out of Saturday uh, from our look at the offense, but that's just what we saw. There's not really much else to get into at quarterback, but Daniel, we got a lot to dive into at wide receiver. There's a couple more other, a couple positions I want to get to before we close things out with a mailbag here in an extra long mid camp episode, but at the receiver spot, Look, it's the same story. It's a new week, but the same story from James Franklin. It's Harrison Wallace, it's Keandre Lambert-Smith, and then it's a crowd of receivers trying to separate from each other. He says some guys are doing it. Uh, maybe, maybe you got one or two guys doing it this day, and then it's another guy or two doing it the next day. He's not ready to, to talk about who's emerged as a number three receiver. We think we've got a pretty good feel how, how things are shaping up. But to this point, it's very much a, a grab bag of names, and we're trying to figure out who Penn State, Mike Yersich, uh, Marcus Higgins, and James Franklin pull out of that hat on September 2nd. I know. It, it's so many guys at this point where you know, every time that you're making a list, they're talking to someone and trying to get them to, to list off who's impressing them. You know, you're always afraid that you're going to miss someone or that someone isn't going to get mentioned. But you know, Penn State really does have a lot to work with right now. I really do think that the that consistency that James Franklin is talking about that's really going to be what determines it. Um, I last on Monday night I got the chance to talk to Harrison Wallace for a, a pretty long time, and I kind of asked him straight up, like, "How's it shaping up for number three wide receiver?" Um, and he wouldn't go with with one name. He said that everybody has been um, you know looking good to him so far, and that you know he's been it's there's a lot of talent in that room, but I am curious to see how it shakes out. Um, I think what Dante Cephas looks like, um, you know, September 2nd against West Virginia versus what he looked like August 2nd in practice is going to be interesting um, to follow along with. You know, Terry Smith uh, talked about, you know, Terry Smith and Dante Cephas go back with the Pittsburgh connection um, and, Terry Smith talked about that. It's you know the the jump from being in practice at Kent State to being in practice at Penn State at the same time, trying to learn an entirely new offense. You know, getting that that mental side down so that you can play faster. That has been a a pretty steep learning curve for Cephas. 
Uh, I think that they're confident that when he puts it together, that he can be a, a bit of a game breaker out there. I think Trey Wallace, you know, called him a spark um, that he can really add a spark to that room once he gets rolling. So yeah, I'm really curious to see how it, how it shakes out. Um, you know, Harrison Wallace. Yeah. He, the one thing that he, he fell back on that I think is a, a good thing to keep in mind. Um, you can read it like a cop out answer occasionally, but you know, the one thing that he said over and over again is that everybody's path is different, that it's going to take everybody a different time to get into a position to contribute. Um, I think the first time he said that we were talking about Caden Saunders where Caden Saunders came in as a you know, top 100 recruit. I think there are a lot of externally, there are a lot of high expectations for what he could do. Didn't necessarily go the way he thought it would in his freshman year, but as someone who has really kind of, you know, reset and put himself into a position where he can potentially contribute. Um, so, you know, I think, th- and you've got guys like Malik Mega, you've got the other redshirt freshmen and Anthony Ivy and Tyler Johnson. You've got a, a redshirt freshman who's Malik McLean, Malik McLean, <laughs> redshirt freshman who switched from defensive back and Christian driver. There's a lot of guys on these different paths to wide receiver. Um, and, you know, I think that it's going to be, you know, what the first three looks like who trots out on September 2nd. I'm really, really curious to see. Um, and also curious to see if they can get to that mythical two deep across that James Franklin said he felt confident in at the start of last year, but didn't necessarily come to fruition. I mentioned earlier, Malik Mega had had one of the nice uh, pass grabs of, of Saturday's uh, open practice. We saw Malik McLean come up with a couple plays when he had his opportunities. Cephas got involved. Um, and, and Liam Clifford's a guy that certainly seems like he's going to be relied upon entering the season out of that slot. And and, and the slot position, guys, is, is kind of fascinating to me. Because if you're trying to find the three best wide receivers and put them on the field together, I wonder – now, if this slot's not going to provide a, more than more than kind of what you're going to get on the outside, and and because you've got Keandre Lambert Smith, who's been the top guy working in there, we've talked about him being the top target in this offense for the passing attack. But then you've got Liam Clifford, you've got Caden Saunders, and 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 Christian Driver working a, a, as well, and and he's more of a a developmental prospect. But I think Caden Saunders is a guy who could be that maybe that spark for you this year to to steal the phrase from Harrison Wallace, and then Liam Clifford established a little bit more it seems like there's a connection in place with drew aller i would say the same thing about drew and Caden. they got together uh, back home in ohio uh, frequently they have a history together they've lived together here on campus so you just wonder what it looks like with the new quarterback you know we got to keep that in mind who does drew kind of get hooked on who becomes a favorite for him and then who does marcus Hagens feel comfortable with because that could change as he gets these guys working through game situations he's worked through practice scenarios with all these receivers but when they get to september and Hagen sees how guys are reading are reacting to, to, to his rotation in game scenarios, we could see that really evolve by the time they get through the first month of the season. So I know people want answers and they want to hear that Dante Cephas has locked it in and he's ready to, to, to break through as a thousand yard receiver. But right now it continues to be Harrison Wallace keeps showing up on a consistent basis. Keandre Lambert Smith has everything in front of him to capitalize as a fourth year player and fulfill his, uh, you know, his, his billing as a top prospect coming to campus. And then there's just everybody else who's got their hat in the ring and they're trying day by day <laughs> to make their case. It sounds like speaking of making your case, Khalil Dinkins has made one at that tight end position because uh, we know Tyler Warren and Theo Johnson are going to be the two guys. They both could start. Uh, you, you know, they're both going to play a ton. 
beyond that, you know, we've been wondering, are one of these, uh, is there going to be a freshman like an Andrew Rapier to come along? Will you have a Jerry Cross in year two make some moves? Khalil Dinkins was the leader in the clubhouse entering the summer, and he's built upon that, it sounds like, from James Franklin on Monday. Not quite to the 250-pound mark, which is where they want their tight ends to be, but he's really stepped up as a blocker. Really strong feedback there from the defensive players on this team as well. And then Khalil Dinkins, we know he flashes the athleticism. Uh, we've seen it in, in, in spring action. We've seen it in some fall action last year a little bit, getting some, getting some work with Drew Aller late in games. Uh, to me, Khalil Dinkins, you know, that's a guy that we haven't talked about much, but if it's really coming through the way James Franklin says, and he wasn't ready to lock him in as the uh, tight end three, but he says it's certainly trending in that, that direction. This is a name that we need to know about because tight end three has been an important role for this roster in years past. And Dinkins has really worked on himself since coming to campus around 225 pounds. A guy who was recruited as a defender by some schools ends up at tight end. And he's while adding all this weight, I think he's up about 25 pounds since he got to campus into the 445 pound range. He's dropped his 40 yard dash by about three tenths of a second. I think he told me when he showed up, he was in the high fours, like four nine ish. Now he's in the four six range solidly. And so this is the kind of strength and conditioning development you get at Penn State. And you throw in the fact that he's got some some good DNA. His dad, Darnold Dinkins, was a tight end who won a Super Bowl in the NFL. Let's just make sure that we all have him on our radar. I know we do here on the show, but after James Franklin's comments, he did not hold back. And when he's having that kind of effusive praise for a player, this time of the calendar, you got to pay attention. Yeah, I think the more important thing, Tyler, was that you asked that question and you asked an open-ended question about the other tight ends uh, besides uh, Theo and Tyler Ward. I, yeah, I said, I said, what's going on at the third tight end spot? I didn't even ask right. about Dickens, and he took it and ran with it. And that's where I, I think if you've not watched, and I know some people enjoy watching the press conferences that we post, some people don't, which is fine, uh, but if James Franklin does that, he's making a point. He just doesn't say that stuff for the heck of it. I mean, if he specifically talks about a player, it's because he feels that player may not be getting kind of the attention that, that he deserves. And the other thing he said about Dinkins is that um, even though he's not the biggest guy, that he's a very talented blocker. And you just wonder how much better he will become as he continues to fill out because that's a very important thing. Uh, and what and what they're doing then to, to to go back to the wide receiver discussion I don't think we could ever have that wide receiver discussion in a vacuum I think you always have to include the tight ends there because I think the tight ends are really going to impact what we see out of the wide receivers and vice versa so I just think it, it's another positive about this team is that you have enough talent in different areas that Okay, if if you have a third receiver step up and, and grab that position, great. Or if you have that solid six man, um, you know, too deep at receiver, great. But if you don't, I think you have some flexibility provided that the tight ends stay healthy, which has been a little bit of an issue for them the last couple of years. But if they stay healthy, that really impacts the passing game. And I really do believe they have to do a better job of incorporating their running backs into the into the passing game as well. So I think all those things kind of working together. But yeah, going back to Dinkins, I thought the fact that you asked an open-ended question, he went specifically to that and that he talked he was very uh high on his blocking as well. That's something that, you know, when you're when they're talking about tight ends, okay, you know, you, you figure most of them are going to be able to catch the ball and any more now at Penn State they're going to be able to run. 
Uh, not that they always haven't, but you know, my point is that they're really, if you look at the way they're recruiting, they're typically going after guys that, you, that, that, that can run or that they think they can uh, get them into the training program like Dinkins and improve their forties. But can they block, you know, can they play with their hand in the dirt? And the fact he's able to do that, I think speaks well. Heard from uh, J1 Sider, running backs coach uh, on Monday night as well. Dropped a bunch of notes on Tuesday morning over at lines247.com in our, our week two preseason uh, updates thread. Uh, but just going back to your point, he did say that an emphasis is getting these running backs involved in the passing game more and getting them in space. He says when you have a talent like a Nick Singleton or a Katron Allen who can be the best player on the field potentially on any given snap, you, you want to get the ball to them in space where they have one-on-one -on -one opportunities versus running them between tackles where you've got seven or eight guys stacked in the box and they've got to work through that mess. So something to keep an eye on there. They've both put a lot of effort into improving as passers this offseason. And by the way, that running back room, we're keeping an eye on that third position there too. I know uh, we've kind of said, oh, Trey Potts got the campus. He played a lot of Minnesota. He's clearly your number three guy. Jay Wan Slater says he's still fixing, you know, figuring out his fix, uh, his fit in the, with this team. Uh, he said Trey Potts right now is is in a lot of ways like a freshman uh, with this team because it's an entirely new language, it's a new offensive scheme, it's a new style, um, and and he had a lot of good things to say about what London Montgomery and Cam Wallace have brought to the field as freshmen as well. Uh, so really encouraging a, a climate of competition between those three newcomers and who's going to be that next man up behind Nick Singleton, Katron Allen. We also have seen uh, Trey Potts involved as a kickoff returner uh, with, with Allen, with Singleton back there. Uh, so a couple different potential paths to playing time for him. And I wanted to finish up, guys, before our mailbag with some special teams comments because there's one name we've mentioned so many on the show, but I got one more to throw in there. Because uh, I didn't really know he – I kind of forgot he existed until Saturday <laughs> night. I, I remember when he committed to the program. Uh, but uh, Ryan Barker, uh, a, a kicker who joined this team as a walk-on, uh, we're trying to figure out who this kicker is going to be. A lot of our conversation has centered on a two-man battle between Alex Falcons, who's the all-time leader in points at Columbia in the Ivy League. He came here as, as a walk-on transfer earlier in the year. And then you got Sanders Sahadak, who was the number one kicker prospect on 24-7 sports a couple cycles ago. They have been the, the the primary guys that we've discussed. Then Ryan Barker shows up and had the best day Saturday in terms of accuracy. I tracked all the kicks that these guys had before scrimmage action, during scrimmage action, after scrimmage action. 44 total kicks on the evening, 32 conversions from that group. And, and Ryan Barker uh, was actually the most accurate out of those three. And, and, and he was the only one that when they pushed things back to a distance of about 51 yards – in the pouring rain, he made it. The other two did not make that. So I left thinking, okay, Ryan Barker might be a factor for a team that wants to go win a Big Ten championship this year. We got to take this under consideration. And when we're talking about, you know, you follow this program, folks. You know how close some of these margins have been with the Ohio States and 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 the matchups that have cost Penn State their ability to get to the college football playoff. There have been one point margins multiple times. So we're talking about an extra point, and we saw. Sanders to Haydack missed a 25-yarder in the rain on Saturday night. You know, what could that cost you? And so three names to know there, I think, right now, because Ryan Barker is a guy I didn't think we'd be talking about this August, but I wanted to make sure we got to him because he showed up, I thought, in a big way on Saturday. And he was getting some love from the sidelines as teammates were cheering these guys on because you could tell the defense defenders, the offensive players, they know that when they have to you know, step aside and let a kicker determine a matchup, you want the right man for the job because you're putting a lot of work in year round to rely upon that field goal going through the uprights. Uh, and so we'll find out a lot more about that group moving ahead. Hey, one quick note, Tyler, on Ryan. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
so he's a guy who just arrived in August, and I got this. I got a little early glimpse. I don't know if you could see it at the. Uh, there's no height and yes. weight there for him on the roster. Mm -hmm. see, I got an early glimpse at the roster, and it, the, the initial roster didn't even have a height and weight for him on. I mean, and this that was August first. Right. So the guy just, I mean, he literally just arrived, and the fact that he's already out there doing some good things, you know, the the, the job that they've done with walk-ons, uh, I think there's something to be said uh, for that with Penn State and special teams. And uh, by the way, Ryan Barker out of uh, Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, so an in-state prospect making that move to campus. And they do have a height and weight now. Six-two, two oh eight. There yeah. you go. Don't, you don't have to worry about two eight. That's pretty good. Them. Pretty good size for a freshman kicker. All right, let's move on to our mailbag and finish with this. It brings us back to that topic of depth, and it takes us back to the defensive backfield. With so much depth at safety, how can Penn State take advantage? Daniel, why don't you start us off here? I think the, the easiest way they can take advantage is by looking at what they did last year uh, in terms of using that prowler package, getting three or four safeties onto the field at once, um, figuring out which guys you can play in the box, which guys can play center field. Um, and even if it comes down to it, which guys can even cover the slot. Um, Terry Smith said last night that King Mack has gotten a couple looks at nickel corner. Um, you know, they're looking at his versatility, how he can get onto the field. So I, I think when you look at those top four safeties um, that are there right now, you have Keaton Ellis, Zaki Wheatley, KJ Winston, and Jalen Reed. All of those guys can do a little bit different things. I think they complement each other well. Um, I just think that Penn State can take advantage by being you know, really creative, figuring out how to get guys onto the field, and building on the experience that a lot of those guys got last year uh, in terms of the different roles they were in. I think that I've said it before, but the thing that really struck me about Manny Diaz when, when he took over the defense last year was just the creativity and the willingness to move guys around, the willingness to use all these different packages. Um, you know, I feel like in 2021, the first year I covered this program, I only saw a three safety set, you know, which would be Jalen Reed out there with Brisker and Jair Brown. I feel like I only saw that a handful of times through the, through the whole year. And last year you're out there in week one uh, at Purdue, you know, with that Prowler package and, and Jair Brown playing up close to the line. So, you know, I think that you have a, the right defensive coordinator and the right coaches in the backfield with Anthony Poindexter and Terry Smith to really figure out how to move these puzzle pieces around, get these guys onto the field and above all, put them in position to make plays. James Franklin wants more turnovers. Jair Brown was the guy that was really the engine for that last year. That's a big role where someone's going to have to step up. Um, and I think if they can put them in the right position, Penn State can take advantage of having all these guys back there. Mark Daniel did a great job laying it all out right there, and 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 I mean, and I think by the way, when you look at this room and, and the transformation under Anthony Poindexter, it's just such a different situation. I feel like there's been years where you think, well, does one of these guys really have to start? And this year, you're thinking, well, who's going to have to actually watch some football? Because uh, there's been preseason camps in, in Penn State. You're thinking, is this guy definitely a starting safety, or are they just going to have to play him because they don't have the depth elsewhere? Now you're thinking they're going to have to leave a starting caliber safety watching a lot of action as the season goes on. Yeah, I mean, um, they, they have really embraced this Prowler package. I mean, it was funny because when they're when they're running it, it's like Prowler, Prowler, Prowler. That's how that's their symbol for it. But you know, just in, in taking some notes and, and and getting back to the mailbag question, um, they were running three safeties, uh, two corners, and a Prowler. And the Prowler, I, I think I had it right. Uh, 
that was Tig Brown last year. And I think you're looking at Hardy and Dixon corners who are very versatile, maybe being more of that, 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 that prowler version. But you look at the safeties and this is with Jalen Reed out. And with the one prowler package, it was Winston Ellis and Wheatley. And then with the number twos, it was Tyrese Mills, King Mack and Makai flowers. And now, you know, that Jalen Reed's going to factor in there, but that's like, when you're talking about uh, having six quality receivers, you know, you're looking at those prowler packages and then, you know, you're, you're, you're putting those guys in there with uh, Kalen King. And if, if Daquan is the prowler, you have Johnny Dixon. I mean, it, it, it's crazy. And then you know what they have pass rusher wise up front and the versatility of their linebacker. So getting back to the question, as Daniel said, the one thing I love about Manny Diaz is that he can adjust what he does to the talent at hand. So don't worry about there being too much talent at a, at a particular position, because if there is Manny Diaz, you can be damn sure he's going to figure out how to use that talent and use it effectively. We've seen it at defensive end. Uh, we saw it with the, the, the defensive backs last year and what he did with Jair Brown. And I think we're going to see it with the defensive backs and specifically the safeties this year. What do King Mac, Makai Flowers, and Dakari Nelson all have in common? They are all former top 24-7 prospects, and they're all really going to have a hard time getting much defensive opportunities uh, this year because of what's ahead of them at the safeties position. And I think the major beneficiary of that reality is going to be Stacey Collins, the special teams coordinator. And I understand, I, I think you're right, that the Prowler package and what the safety room is going to lend to the defensive structure all year long is huge. But what they can contribute to special teams coverage should not be overlooked because King Mac's going to fly around out there and, and you could see him make an impact as a return man if they want to get the ball in his hands bad enough. Uh, but Makai Flowers can, can can definitely get down the field in coverage. We've seen him mix it up down there. And Dakari Nelson, you know, is still trying to figure out what to make of him. He's, he's, he's so big out there just roaming around the field at his size, and we've discussed that. I don't know what it's going to look like three years down the line from that safety, but I do know – He's the kind of athlete that can do a lot of different things for you and, and a variety of special teams roles as well. And then throw in Tyrese Mills, who's in his second year. Last year was lost for him coming from Lackawanna College. Um, you know, got hurt early in camp, was playing Sam linebacker. Now he's back at safety. And, and I noted on Saturday that, that he's another guy who looks much better physically than, than last time we saw them in kind of a scrimmage opportunity. And he seems to be advancing. And I think he can use his talents on the special team. So ultimately, I think you, you look at how can the safety depth help Penn State go chase a Big Ten title? Well, it can help make sure that that you are out-athleting out, out people uh, on special teams because that's a lot of times what it comes down to, uh, and I think those guys will help them get that job done. Mark Daniel, an hour and a half. I mean, this is – I promised a mid-camp report on this podcast. I think we delivered it. Uh, big thanks to both of you. Yeah, yeah, anytime. Love talking about this stuff as always. <laughs> All right, catch up with you both soon. Uh, we have a lot more to come at lines247.com in the days ahead. Uh, a lot to unpack from our recent opportunities to see this team on the practice field, to talk to coaches and players. Plenty of notes and updates on 24-7 sports. It's also time to turn some of those notes into full stories. We'll get a chance to do that and sink our teeth into some of these subjects in the days ahead. Uh, there is photo day coming up this Saturday as well, so we'll be there to cover that one, see if any news comes out of it, but it'll be a good opportunity to get a, a major photo gallery up at lines247.com. And along the way, make sure you're following our VIP uh, preseason progress reports, our VIP practice coverage, and everything else that goes on behind the scenes for our VIP subscribers. 
subscribers at lions247.com. If you want to jump on board before the season gets underway, $1 for one month to kind of step in, take a little test drive, or come all in one uh, one year for 30% off our annual subscription. We're happy to have you on board. It'll take you all the way through this season and all the way almost to next season uh, at Lions247.com. Big thanks to Mark Brennan and Daniel Gallon for providing their perspective. For now, I'm Tyler Donahue stepping aside. We'll be back later this week with another episode of the Lions 24-7 podcast. Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Samphill, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. 